Okay, let's go ahead and continue to praise the Lord by listening to His Word. Let's get our Bibles out. We're in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. You have to excuse the cough. I think uh, I blew out one of my vocal cords on He Will Hold Me Fast. So pray for me that I can actually preach this sermon. <clears throat> I have a pastor friend from Australia who spent several years preparing to plant a church in Perth, which is a city on the western coast of Australia. If you've never heard of it, just think like San Diego, but even more beautiful. Now, uh, lest my friend be accused of just trying to use the gospel as a platform for living the salt life out there by the beach, you should know that there's a real gospel need in Perth. There's actually a real gospel need in all of Australia. So my friend... uh, in preparing to do this church plant, he, he went through all the steps, right? So he did the theological training, he took a bunch of seminary classes, and he did a pastoral internship, and all the rest of the stuff that goes along with that. He scouted the region, he did the research, he got a core team together, he raised funds. He did all the stuff that a church planner needs to do. And then he got to Perth, and he got to work, and he found that the work was just really hard. Right? He found that the soil was just really tough. If you live in a beautiful beach resort city in a developed western nation, it's kind of hard to hear someone when they tell you that you're lost. Now his labor bore some initial fruit, but it was very little, it was very slow, very delicate. And then one day, about two years into the church plant, uh, he got some bad news. There was a church that was going to be planting a campus right down the road from his church. It was Hillsong. Within a year, their church planting efforts ended in the city of Perth. I have another friend who planted a church in Hartzell. Uh, you've heard of it, right? Hearts Vegas, right? Just up the road here. Anyways. My buddy's vision for this church plant was similar to what he did in the UK. He wanted it to be connected to a coffee shop, right? So everything in this church would be connected to that. The church would meet in the coffee shop. They would do evangelism through the coffee shop. Some of the money to help pay the salaries of the pastors would come through the coffee shop business. And he thought it was a pretty good idea. Well, for the first year or so, it seemed to be going pretty well. And then one day... My buddy, the church planner, noticed a sign in a shop window just a few doors down from their coffee shop. A new business was opening up less than 100 feet away from their business. Can you guess what it was? Another coffee shop. His coffee shop closed within six months. On the hit HBO series Curb Your Enthusiasm, the star of the show, Larry David, opens up a spite coffee shop right next to another coffee shop in the area in hopes of killing the competition and taking over the coffee business in that area. And people go, oh, that's actually a great idea. And so in the show, this leads to a tiny army of spite stores being opened up all over the greater Los Angeles area. Spite jewelry stores, spite bakeries, and so on, all opening up right next door and killing off the competition. Now, lest you think this is a crazy idea that would just happen on a TV show, have you noticed all these Mapco gas, gas stations popping up all over the place? Have you noticed where they tend to build? Right across the street from other older, more run-down gas stations, right? I mean, who's going to go to the Shell station? That's kind of weird. When you can go to the Mapco with the fancy coffee and the tap beer and the immaculate restrooms. Friends, the world is full of fierce competition. Nature is red in tooth and claw. The free market is not some pristine, 
white linen covered affair where everyone just sort of stands back and patiently waits their turn for the opportunity to partake in the bounty. Quite the opposite. The free market is a war zone. Economists and intellectuals, they discuss the value of market competition in articles and periodicals and textbooks. And when they do, they use very sanitized language. But those who actually compete in the market know that competition is a sweaty, bloody, perilous affair wherein all parties are fighting to stake their claim and edge out the competitor. Now, this kind of territorialism, greed, glory-mongering, it can make itself at home in the church. We've all heard stories, and sadly, far too many of us have witnessed situations where there's a turf war between this church and another church in town. We've probably all seen battles between church staff members or committee leaders over who's going to be in control of this committee or that ministry. We've probably all seen tragic situations where the gospel has been marred by Christians biting and devouring one another in order to get on top of or stay on top of the glory ladder in the church. Competition among God's people, even among God's ministers is a story as old as the Bible itself. In this morning's text, for example, you see that John the Baptist had some followers who were basically ready to wage territorial warfare with Jesus and his followers. So turn with me to John chapter 3, verses 22. We're going to read down to verse 26. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them, and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you, and that's referring to Jesus, across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing And all are going to him. Now, when we read the Gospels, we have to remember that there's no wasted detail. Everything that's in here is in here for a reason. God wants it where it is. So even the stuff that seems to be boring or irrelevant to you as you read the Bible, it's not. It's all there for a reason. Now, the first three verses in this morning's text might seem to you to be irrelevant Right? I mean, you just go back and you look at the first three verses. Oh, okay, so Jesus and his disciples are in the Judean countryside, and John was at Anon near Salim where there was a lot of water. Yeah, okay, big deal. But that is actually there to help you understand what is about to come after it. It's setting the scene for the rest of the text. So here's the scene. Jesus and his disciples are baptizing in the Judean countryside further south, and John and his disciples are baptizing at Anon near Salim up north. It's, it's a pretty far distance from one another. And you'll remember that at this time, John the Baptist was kind of a really big deal in Jerusalem. He was kind of like a religious rock star, right? He's having confrontations with the religious leaders. He's calling all of Israel to repentance, right? He's baptizing. And people are, ooh, this might be the Messiah. This might be the guy that we've all been waiting for. And then Jesus shows up, right? And far from feeling threatened, John bends over backwards to tell everyone who can hear that Jesus is actually the star of the show. You know, so John just keeps over and over again, as we've walked through the first three chapters of this gospel, John the Baptist is constantly saying, hey, don't look at me. Look at Jesus. I'm not the one. Jesus is the one. I'm not important. He's important. And then Jesus himself starts to baptize. Now, let's just pause and remember what baptism is and what it was even in this context. Baptism was, is a symbol of repentance. So in one sense, Jesus conducting baptisms, it's not weird. It's not unexpected. It makes sense. This is kind of what prophets do. Prophets go, hey, uh, y'all are sinning. Stop it. (laughs) And now I need you to demonstrate your repentance. And 
And so Jesus begins to preach the gospel, call people to repentance, and to baptize them, okay? Now, in this morning's text, we learn that John is baptizing up north by Salim. Why? Because there's enough water there so that you can dunk people. Huh? Ah, moving on. <laughs> I have more here, but I'm really going to move on. <laughs> and then we have, so John's up north and Jesus is further south in the Judean countryside. And I don't want to bore you to death with maps and keys and all that stuff, but you should know that John and Jesus have plenty of room to be carrying out their respective ministries without any kind of overlap or interference. That's why John includes these details here, okay? So that you can know that John the Baptist and Jesus are not on top of one another as they carry out the same kind of ministry. So it's not like, you know, John the Baptist is on one side of the Jordan River and Jesus is on the other side of the Jordan River and they're like looking at each other as they baptize. That's not what's happening. It's not like, think, think more like John's in Birmingham and Jesus is in Decatur, something like that. Now, at the end of verse 23, you can see that not only was the water plentiful, but so were the people. Look at, look at verse 23 again. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized. So there's no shortage of people for John. Right? They're, they're thriving under his ministry. And so we might look at this and we might think, great. No drama. John's doing his thing. Jesus is doing his thing. Just two faithful preachers preaching the gospel, seeing a lot of spiritual fruit, just two thriving ministries. And then you get to verse 25, right? We already saw that, but let's just look at it again. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John, that's John's disciples, and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So, yeah, there was a dispute between some unnamed Jew, he's probably unnamed for a reason, and some of John's disciples. We don't know the nature of the dispute, but it leaves John's disciples to go to John the Baptist and say, man, Jesus' ministry really seems to be picking up steam, Lord. I think we should be worried about that. Look at verse 26 again. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, and then all that other stuff, and all are going to him. All are going to him. And you can just feel the jealousy, the territorialism, the competition in these words. Apparently, Jesus' ministry had begun to pick up so much steam that John's disciples were feeling threatened by his ministry. They may not have wanted to be the only game in town, but they wanted to be the biggest and the best and the most popular game in town. And I can, just, I can just see it now, just his disciples whispering in his ear, Rabbi John, aren't you worried about this? Aren't you, all these people are going to Jesus to be baptized. You know what your name is, right? John the Baptist. You're the baptizer. This is your gig. This is your thing. He's trying to come and steal your thunder. Not a good look. And isn't this how it always goes when someone tries to pit two faithful ministries against each other? There's two rules that you typically find when this happens. First, you have the rule, and this is 90% of the time the case, of people making an issue where there is no issue. John the Baptist's disciples, they say, oh look, everyone's going to Jesus. But we saw in the text that people were still coming to John. There was no shortage of people in Israel who were in sin and who needed to repent and be baptized. No shortage. But to let John's disciples tell it, the market was growing thin. And then the next rule that you have with these kinds of controversies is that it's typically the followers who instigate the fights. Right? Rarely are the leaders of different ministries in competition with one another. John the Baptist and Jesus certainly aren't in competition. It's their followers that are trying to create controversy, stir up the flames of tension, rivalry. You know, it's like kids in the schoolyard yelling, fight, 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 when the two kids in the middle of the circle really didn't want to fight. I remember once hearing a brother comment about how John MacArthur and Mark Dever 
had had a falling out over some issue in evangelicalism. And according to this person, oh, their relationship was strained and they sent me a blog article kind of highlighting it. And I don't think they knew that I know Mark well. And I know that he had just spent the weekend in L.A. with John MacArthur. And that there was really no friction at all in their relationship. Now, why do I bring that up? The MacArthurites and the Deverites might be happy to believe that their guys are at war with one another. They almost, they almost desire that. They crave that. But the men themselves would have laughed at that idea. I'm not saying that Christian leaders don't fall out with one another. That they don't part ways sometimes. They do. But 90% of the time, what you see on the internet is just respective camps trying to start something between guys when there is nothing between them at all. Okay, so... That's the scene. That's the setup. Two rabbis, two sets of disciples, two crowds, two baptisms. And to the carnal mind, like John's disciples, you have a perfect setup for a prophetic war. But John the Baptist refuses to give in to this mindset. Look at verses 27 through 30. John answered, that is to his disciples, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, excuse me, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Here we see John the Baptist refusing to let his disciples stir the pot. John says, guys, this is not a competition. And even if it were a competition, I would lose. But because I'm on Team Jesus, even if I lose, I win. Now, he says this in four verses, and each one of those verses is an argument in itself. So those are going to be the first four, verses of the, uh, first four points of this morning's sermon. And I don't know what you're thinking. Sean, you were, we're just now getting to the points? We're going to be here all day. They're going to be quick. Don't worry. I know you guys would stay here with me all day anyways. Amen. Yeah. First point is his theological argument. John's theological argument. Just look back at verse 27. <clears throat> John's immediate, his first response to his disciples is this. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. This is John's theological argument why he is not going to give in to territorialism. And competition. He says, I can't be afraid of losing my ministry to Jesus' ministry because I didn't invent this ministry. I didn't create this ministry. This ministry doesn't belong to me. God gave it to me for a time. So even if your concern is valid, even if Jesus is going to take over the whole baptism racket in all of Jerusalem, I'm totally content with that. I'll go back out into the wilderness and you know, invest in camel hair fashion endeavors and, you know, locust harvesting and all that. It's okay. It's in God's hands, not mine. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That's true of everything, including ministry. Now, in the church at Corinth, Paul had to deal with almost this exact same issue. There was a factionalism, a territorialism that was taking place at the church in Corinth. And in his letter to the Corinthians, where he's trying to help them work through it, he makes the same argument that John makes here with his disciples. Listen, he says, "Uh, hey, you guys who are super concerned about following this guy or that guy, uh, what do you have that you did not receive? That is, received from God. And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So according to Paul, according to John the Baptist, according to God, the cure for this kind of territorialism, this kind of competition, is to just recognize that God is the one who gives the ministry. That's the first argument, his theological argument. His second argument, point number two, is his experiential argument. His experiential argument. Look back at verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John is saying, guys, 
um, we've been through this, okay? I've already told you this on multiple occasions. I am not the Christ. I am not the light. I am sent to bear witness to the light. And I can just see it now, you know, John, as he had told them the first time, and the second time, and the third time, as he had told his disciples, I can just see them sitting there nodding their heads, you know, kind of glazed over look in their eyes, just mouth breathing, you know, just, mmm, yes, got it, John, that makes perfect sense, amen, Rabbi, we get it, Jesus is the one, you're not the one, we totally understand, and they didn't, we totally get it, and they didn't. If they would have gotten it, they would have never thought to be jealous or territorial, if they really understood who Jesus was, if they really understood what John the Baptist had been saying this whole time, they would not have viewed Jesus as competition. Rather, they would have heard about Jesus' growing ministry and they would have rejoiced. They would have gone to John and instead of saying, Rabbi, we've got bad news, they would have gone to John and they would have said, Rabbi, we have got great news. You remember Jesus? You, we were with him. You've been talking about him this whole time. Remember how you said he was the Messiah? Man, I think you're right. Because as he is preaching, people are listening. They are going to him. They are repenting. They are being baptized. You should see this. It's crazy. This is the best news ever. That's how they would have responded if they would have really understood John the first time and the second time and the third time he told them about Jesus. It's really tough to be a teacher sometimes, you know? You say the same things over and over again, and you, you hope that your people hear it and believe it. You pray that they do. You're confident that they are getting it. Lots of amens and head noddings, right? Right? Amen? Lots of head nods, yeah. Nobody sleeps through your sermons. Everyone is attentive. Nobody's checking their phones. But sometimes, uh, sadly, all too often, you teach and you preach and the sheep, they go and they do things and they say things and they act in certain ways that make the teacher wonder if he's just wasting his breath. That's probably how John feels as he is once again telling his disciples about who Jesus is in this morning's text. So that's John's second argument. Here's his third argument. It's parabolic. I'm not trying to show off with that word. I just couldn't think of a better word, okay? Parable, it's, 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 it's an argument in parable form. Look at verse 29. <clears throat> the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's Jesus. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. That's the best man. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So here we see John really stepping up his game as a teacher. He's like, okay, I said it one way. Now I'm going to say it another way, and then finally, I'm going to give you like a parable to really help you understand what I'm trying to tell you about Jesus. And here's the parable he uses. He says to his disciples, guys, think about me like I'm the best man at a wedding. A wedding where Jesus is the groom and Israel is the bride. All right? He's telling his disciples this. Are you guys tracking? And they go, yes, Rabbi, we're tracking. And then John continues, now what kind of best man would I be if I were jealous of the groom at his wedding? That's not a very good best man. A good best man is happy for the groom. A good best man is overjoyed just to be present to witness the groom taking his bride in love. And John is telling his disciples with this little mini parable here, Guys, I don't mind being the best man. As a matter of fact, it's right that I'm the best man. I'm not supposed to be the groom. I wouldn't be as happy if I were the groom. I am most happy to be here and to bear witness to the groom, to Jesus. So that's the third argument that John employs. The fourth argument is his proverbial argument. Look at verse 30. <clears throat> he must increase but I must decrease. Now this is, this is like John just kind of capping it all off. He's kind of taking everything he said thus far 
and he's putting it in a maxim, something that's pithy, something that's punchy. Hey, if you couldn't remember the parable and if you didn't really understand my theological argument and if you weren't listening when I gave you my experiential argument, let me just give you something that you can like put in your pocket and take with you. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. Now, when some people read this verse, they mistakenly read it like this. I, John the Baptist, am going to decrease so that Jesus is able to increase. Right? Like, you know, uh, I'll bow out. Jesus is more important than me, so I'll just step aside and I'll let him have the top spot, the center stage. You know, I'll kind of humble myself. That's not what John is saying. John is saying, as a matter of fact, that Jesus is going to increase. He must. It's the nature of who he is. He's God in the flesh. It's a fact. Like death in taxes. You can bet on it. Bank on it. There's no doubt about it. This is how history unfolds. The Messiah rises up and takes his rightful place as king of the universe. And everyone else bows down. We'll see that on the final day. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you think, <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like Jesus is my king. I don't, I don't really feel like I need to bow down to him. Okay. But your feelings don't equal facts. And one day you will bow down. Again, I can just imagine John sitting there talking to his disciples, right? I can see that he's like, like I do with my kids sometimes, like, hey, lock in, focus, right? Listen, guys, he tells them, Jesus is the king. He is going to take his place on the throne. He is going to be worshiped, honored, and glorified. He will increase. I will decrease. And not only is that okay, it's a positive good. It's what I want. It's the best thing in the world. So let me just go ahead and nip this competitive mindset in the bud. So those are the four arguments that Jesus, excuse me, John the Baptist employs against his disciples in their carnal, competitive mindset. Now, I have three points of application for you, okay? First point of application is us versus Jesus, I hope you've seen by now that at the heart of this morning's text is John's refusal to compete against Jesus in gospel ministry. Can you see that? Okay. Well, how does that apply to us today? I mean, it's not like Jesus is, you know, out there on 6th Avenue preaching the gospel and we would feel like we're in any kind of direct competition with him. So how does this apply to us today? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Let me begin by stating the first point of application as plainly and as bluntly as possible. To engage in any kind of competition with true gospel churches is to compete against Christ himself. I'll say it again. To, compete, to engage in any kind of competition with other true gospel churches is to compete against Christ himself. I could have taken this a thousand different directions. I figured I'd just stick with churches. Why do I say that? Well, because of the theological truth that the church is the body of Christ. He is the head. The church is the body. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 12. Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So whether you realize it this morning, whether you feel like it this morning, if you are here and you are a Christian and you are a member of this church, you are here as Christ's body. That's true of every other gospel church that's worshiping the Lord Jesus this very morning. Now, if that's true, and it is, then it means that any true church is literally a part of Jesus himself. Now, two, two qualifiers. Obviously, not all gospel churches are equally healthy. You can be a gospel church, a true church, by the skin of your teeth. So you take the Bible and you look at uh, Corinth and you look at Ephesus. Corinth, oh man, they were struggling. 
hey, Pastor Sean, I'm thinking about going to, uh, moving to Corinth. I hear they have a church there that I'll be able to join. What do you think about that? I don't know. Have you checked out Ephesus? You know, maybe, maybe the job opportunities in Ephesus are a little bit better, right? So first qualification is it's, it's not competition to encourage individual Christians to leave unhealthy churches and join more healthy churches, okay? That's not the kind of thing that I'm talking about. If you're at a church where there's like just sort of like a bare minimum gospel life there, yeah, you should probably go somewhere where you can thrive and grow and be poured into. That's not competition. Second uh, qualification here is you'll notice that I, I use very specific language. Listen again. To engage in any kind of competition with a true gospel church. A true gospel church is to compete against Christ himself. I put that language there on purpose because we should very much be in competition with false churches. We are in competition with false churches. They're trying to lead people to hell. We're trying to lead people to Christ. The competition is set. We must absolutely be opposed to Christian leaders, Christian ministries, Christian organizations that are not in fact Christian at all. We should name false teachers. We should name false churches. We do that regularly in this church. Not because we think we're special, but really just because we see the example in the Bible and we just want to do what the Bible does. We should warn against false teachers and false churches. We should not partner with them. If the opportunity arises, we should try to love them and correct them and help them and persuade them. But we should also work against them if opportunity arises. But that's not what's happening in this morning's text. It's not like John the Baptist's ministry is terrible and Jesus' ministry is fantastic. They're both doing the same thing. Is John the Baptist doing it as well as Jesus is doing it? Of course not. And therein you find the access to how we make sense of like our disagreement maybe with a church up the road. That's a true gospel church, but maybe they don't do things the way that we think that they should do them in every way, you know? We don't think that they're as healthy as they can be. Yeah, but we're basically doing the same thing, okay? Friends, it's easy for us to applaud other churches when they don't feel like a threat to us. To applaud other ministries, other organizations, other teachers, when they don't feel like they're stepping on our toes, when it doesn't feel like they're creeping into our territory. Well, I'm doing a homeless and addiction ministry. Uh, that's not a shout out to Delisa. She's never said that to me. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> it's all too easy for us to treat gospel ministry like a game of hungry, hungry hippos, right? Like, like, all the f like the main five churches in town are all just trying to gobble up all the resources before the other ones can. Brothers and sisters, listen. Listen to me say this. Good gospel ministry will never be in competition with other good gospel ministry. It just doesn't work like that. It can't work like that. If every church in this town became a solid, healthy, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church tomorrow, there would still be no competition. The harvest is so plentiful, and the workers are so few, that there is enough room for a hundred healthy churches in the city of Decatur. So, for example, when New Eden came to Decatur and they asked if they could use our building to start their church plant, I didn't say, well, actually, guys, listen, we're a small church revitalization and we're really just trying to get our own thing going here. You know, and, it, and this is a small town and if you're doing the same thing that we're doing, just a little different, and we're meeting in the same building at different times, well, that might create confusion and we would shrink maybe and you guys would increase and we just can't risk that. All right, that's not what we did. Now, do we agree with that church or any other church in the city for that matter about everything? Of course not. But because New Eden and Mosaic Church and insert name of other church is a true gospel church, it would be wrong for us to allow ourselves to enter into the mindset of John's disciples against them. I've felt this pressure as a pastor, confession time. I've felt it. So you know what I did to kill that nerve? 
I called up the pastor of that church and I said, hey, I want you to know that I'm feeling this way and it's sinful. Forgive me. What can I do to serve you? How can I help you? We're on the same team. Do you believe it? And he's like, yeah, I believe it. I'm like, good, I do too. So let's not let Satan try to work this mentality between us. And the Lord seemed to bless that. So as I build relationships with various pastors around town, like Dylan Troncoso at Mosaic Church, I don't hold back on equipping and encouraging his ministry because, you know, between First Bible and DPC and Point Mallard, we pretty much got this area covered. No. Now here's a little subpoint of application for you. Don't be like John's disciples. Don't try and pit ministry leaders and pastors and organizations against one another. You should know that pastors are human, all too human. And unlike John the Baptist, they may end up listening to the people who are whispering in their ear. They can all too easily be influenced by the chatter of their followers. Pastors can pay way too much attention to what people are saying on social media. And then they may end up in this kind of godless competition. In competition with people that they have everything in common with. Okay, not everything. But almost everything in common with. Same body, same blood, (coughs) same spirit, same inheritance, same name, same gospel. And most of the time, agreement on most secondary matters. And here you come, sending them a screenshot, a tweet, a Facebook post, a blog article. Here you come, hey, have you heard about so-and-so and such-and-such and what they've said and done? Don't contribute to that. Don't sow seeds of competition in the ears of your spiritual leaders. This is such a problem in the American church, and it's not just in the church. It happens with conferences. So this conference is in competition with that conference. It's TGC versus the Shepherds Conference versus G3. And it's this church planning network versus that church planning network. And it's this seminary versus that seminary. And it's not like some mainline Protestant heretical seminary versus a good solid reform seminary. It's one reform seminary that has a slightly different perspective on the regulative principle than the other reform seminary. And now they're at war with one another. It's, it doesn't make any sense. It's foolish. So my exhortation for you this morning is do not contribute to this kind of anti-gospel, unchristian, competitive territorialism in the body of Christ. Second point of application, decreasing versus disappearing. Decreasing versus disappearing. What's really interesting about this account in John 3 is that John is still baptizing when, when this drama begins to unfold, we already saw that in verse 23. So yes, Jesus' fame was increasing. Yes, his ministry was growing. Yes, John knew for a fact that his influence was on the decline. M- more than he knew. Off of his head soon enough. But just because it was time for John to decrease did not mean that it was time for him to disappear. God still had work for him to do. People were still coming to him. He was still preaching faithfully. Baptisms were still taking place. You know, the great American athlete, Ricky Bobby, once said that if you ain't first, you're last. Well, in in NASCAR, that may be true. Is that true in NASCAR? No? No? Even if it's not, it's definitely not true in ministry. There are, (laughs) no joke, 10,000 pastors out there who can preach better than me. In our own city, I think about someone like Steve Bateman at First Bible. He is a much better preacher than I am. If you don't believe me, just go First Bible's website, listen to one of his sermons. You'll be like, oh yeah, definitely. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have any work for me to do in this city. That doesn't mean that God doesn't have any work for me to do here with you all this morning. Even amongst our elders, there are better preachers and better teachers. 
And just because one person is really good in this one thing doesn't mean that the other person is utterly worthless in that thing. But we don't, we don't like to think about ourselves like that. We want to be on top. We want to be the best. We want to be the winners. We don't want to be small. We don't want to be insignificant. Like the prince of the power of this world, we want to be on top. Right? So it's not enough that God can gift us. We want to be gifted in the superlative. Jesus tells us to be faithful over little. If he gives us a little, just be faithful over that little. And we're like, God, no, I want a lot. We want to be seen. We want to be glorified. We want to increase. But isn't that backwards? I mean, isn't that just contra everything that we learn in the gospel? Shouldn't we want Jesus to be high and lifted up? And you know that we can't do both, right? Sun comes out, what happens to the stars? Can they shine too? The moon and the sun and the, you know, well, I actually saw the moon the other day. Okay, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Can the two lights be in the sky and, and light up this earth at the same time? No. But just because the sun exists doesn't mean that the moon is not significant in its own way. Shouldn't we want Christ to be magnified? Shouldn't we deflect attention and honor and glory away from ourselves to the one who is truly worthy of these things? And don't we understand, brothers and sisters, that one of the greatest promises of the gospel is that if we diminish ourselves, if we decrease, if we glorify him, that one day we will be folded into his glory? Man, friends, we have to remember that Jesus has chosen to use the small and the foolish and the pathetic and the unwise things of this world to grow his church. If you don't believe me, join Sixth Avenue. It's what we live out every day. And I gotta tell you, just as an aside, the longer I've been in ministry, the smaller and weaker I feel. And I think that that's a good thing. Listen to what Jesus says comparing himself to John the Baptist. Listen to the language he uses. Speaking of John, he says, He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Does Jesus say, John was nothing. His ministry was trash. I can't believe you guys listened to this guy. I can't believe you followed him. Uh, there was no light. It was like a little... Bic lighter that was running out of lighter fluid. No, he says he had a light and it was a shining light and it was a worthwhile light. But now my light is here. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says this, truly I say to you, so, you know, whenever you see that in the Gospels, when Jesus says that, pay attention. Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John wasn't first but he certainly wasn't last. Friends, you are not going to be first. Your ministry is not going to be first. This church is not going to be first. But that doesn't mean that we're gonna be last. And even if it seems like we're last on this side of heaven, you might be surprised about what that means for us when we get to eternity. Third point of application, last point. Jesus versus joy. Look at the end of verse 29. <coughs> the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears them rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Friends, there is a kind of joy that comes from being prominent here and now, like you increasing here and now. It's the kind of joy that Jesus wants you to see as false joy, as fool's gold kind of joy. In Matthew 6, if you go back and read it, he says, you know these people who give in such a way that they can be seen and glorified by other men? You know the people who pray in such a way so that they can be heard and glorified by men? You know the people who fast in such a way so that they can be seen and applauded and praised by other men? You know all that joy that they get from that? It's worthless. Jesus wants us to know that so that we can find true joy in him. And it seems like from this morning's text, John has found joy. 
that joy. It's the joy that rejoices in not being seen, but in Christ being seen by all. And it seems like John is overwhelmed with joy. He says, my joy is complete. Have you ever said anything like that? I very rarely feel that way on this earth. The closest I ever come is when I'm with my wife, my children, and this church family. And even then, it's a bit of a stretch. Complete? Really? I don't know. John says, my joy is complete. And he, he says there's great rejoicing. Friends, what I want you to see this morning is that more Jesus equals more joy. It's not enough for us to state it in the negative, to say merely that we shouldn't be in competition with Jesus. We should have a positive vision for rejoicing as we see Jesus increasing in the church, in our church, in our city, in our country, among the nations. And it is a sad state of affairs if we can only rejoice when we see our tribe increasing, when we see churches that believe exactly the way that we do increasing, then we can rejoice. But if they do things just a little bit different than us, oh no, we can't rejoice at, at that. Friends, any time that the true body of Christ increases, we should be happy about it. When the PCA church down the road, which baptizes babies, increases by 50% because the pastor there is preaching the gospel and conversions are taking place and the Holy Spirit is gifting that church to grow up into the image of Christ, your response should not be like, well, dang, the baby baptizers are getting bigger. No, it should be like, praise God, man, I can't even imagine what we can do if we lock arms with them. When another church plant that believes the same gospel opens up just down the road from us, our first reaction shouldn't be, ooh, I wonder if we're going to lose members to them. It should be, hmm, I wonder how we can partner with them. We should be rooting for other churches. Do you hear the way we pray in our, in our pastoral prayers? Did you hear Pastor Will this morning when he was praying and how he lifted up other pastors and other preachers in our area? Did you hear how there was zero competitive tone in that and how it was genuine? We should be rooting and praying for other churches. Lord, give them revival. Use them mightily. We should recommend other churches. I tell people all the time, hey, I don't think Sixth Avenue is the right church for you, but let me tell you two, three, four, five other gospel churches in the area where you can go. When members leave our church and they leave well and they go find another gospel church, we should not groan and complain and be territorial. We should help them along their way. I think we do that very well. Jacob uh, Johnson and Allison Johnson have both told me that they felt very loved by us as they continue to move on to their next church. You know, sometimes when siblings get in trouble, their parents will make them uh, hug and say, I love you. You ever seen that before? You know, they've been fighting. They stand them in a corner. Now, you will stand there and hug each other, and you will say, I love you. And then, you know, I love you, right? <laughs> Fine. That's not the kind of rejoicing that, that John is talking about here. That's not the kind of rejoicing that I'm talking about here. I'm talking about true, genuine joy. I'm talking about best man at his best friend's wedding kind of rejoicing. <clears throat> I'm talking about angels in heaven celebrating when a sinner repents kind of rejoicing. I'm talking the father running out to meet the prodigal son Big party back at the house, let's slaughter the fattened calf kind of rejoicing. I'm talking the father running out to meet his son and hug him and give him his ring kind of rejoicing. I'm talking what do you need? How can I help? Let us serve you in any way we can kind of rejoicing. I'm talking about we're going to be in heaven together, worshiping God forever kind of rejoicing. I'm talking Colossians 1.3. We always thank our God when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people, kind of rejoicing. I'm talking about the king is here, sin is conquered, death is destroyed, Satan is ruined, salvation is accomplished, kind of rejoicing. Friends, a lot of good gospel work is happening right now in our city. How should we respond to that? With great joy. Now in closing, I want you to consider the world that you live in. 
everyone in this world is trying to increase. No one in this world is trying to decrease in status or popularity or income or power. No one is trying to be less influential or leave a smaller legacy. No one is just trying to preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. You know, the old rappers are not trying to facilitate the young new rappers and help them establish their careers. The old quarterbacks are not trying to just slowly ease their way out of the team and help the the young and -and up-and-coming guy get planted. No, Brett Favre is like, I'm back again. Did I do that right? Sports analogies. Do you remember the whole Conan, Jay Leno fiasco? Jay Leno couldn't let it go. He couldn't decrease. But friends, decreasing is what the Christian life is all about. So, if you're here this morning and you're not sure whether you're, you're, you're a Christian or not, you know, maybe, maybe not, you're kind of working through it, let me just ask you one good diagnostic question. You can take this with you. And just ask yourself, maybe when you have some time to meditate on it and be honest with yourself. What do you want more than anything in the world? What brings you the greatest joy? Is it your increase or Jesus's? If you're here this morning and you know that you're not a Christian... I want you to know that this decreasing stuff is not easy for us as Christians. It does not come naturally to us. By God's grace, we get better at it. But the only reason that we can decrease is because Jesus, who was everything, became nothing for us on the cross. The infinitely glorious one set aside his glory and he took on sin. The ever-increasing God of the universe decreased to the point of death so that we might increase in him if we receive him by faith. John the Baptist is gone. Jesus is no longer preaching on this earth, but the call to repent, to believe, and to be baptized is still alive and well today. And Jesus is calling out to you this very morning, And he is telling you that if you turn from your sin, if you trust from him, you will be received into his resurrected glory. Let's pray. Father, you have been very kind to us this morning. You have shaped us and molded us with your word. Help us to not be like John's disciples who are so hard of hearing. Give us eyes to see. Give us faith to truly believe and capture and obey and to love what we have heard from you in your word. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.